Hello and welcome to another deep dive episode on the Total Space Network. I'm Mikko and today we will be talking about high altitude balloons and space. And we have a special guest Tori from Overlook Horizon. But first I let the other hosts introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Framrick. I'm a guest host today on the Deep Dive podcast. Miko and the team, thanks very much for having me here today. Hey everyone, I'm Kage. I am one of the co-hosts for Becoming Multiplanetary. Miko, uh, thank you also for having me as a uh, guest host here. I'm another space nut and I'm a regular voice on this show. I'm Rich LB and I'm also a co-host on Becoming Multiplanetary, same as Kage. Miko, thank you for having me on the show this week. Let's get started. So, Tori, would you like to introduce yourself before we start and tell a bit about yourself and your channel? Yeah, thanks for having me. My name's... Tori, and I'm the executive director and the uh, YouTube personality behind the Overlook Horizon uh, YouTube channel. We're a nonprofit U.S. charity organization that is uh, trying to spread spaceflight education and science and technology and get more people interested in in space flight, whether that's through our, our online videos or high-altitude weather balloon projects. So I'm really uh, excited to be here and talk to you guys about it. So thanks for having me on, Miko. Glad to have you here. So how did you get into the high-altitude balloons? So I'm a uh, software engineer as my regular full-time job. And, uh, you know, I've always loved space flight and anything NASA in general. Um, but a couple of years back, my wife had bought me an Arduino computer. It's like a credit card size circuit board computer that you can program and make do all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, a couple of years back, I had uh, really loved the idea of trying to get into those because with my software work that I do for regular work, it's all stuff that you use on the computer. There's nothing physical that you touch. And so I love the idea of of building something with an, an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi and trying to introduce it into the physical world when you can see it interact with stuff. And so one of the first things that I did with it is make an LED blink on and off. And my wife hates when I tell this story that I called her in. I'm like, you gotta look at this. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. It light blinks on and off. And that's all it did. It did nothing else. She was not that impressed, or at least maybe she pretended to be impressed. But I had to up my game and do something a little more interesting and real world stuff. So I was trying to figure out what to do with it, whether to build some sort of robot or weather station or something like that. And then I saw that it was really popular, especially in the UK. People were sending these weather balloon flights up using Raspberry Pis and Arduino computers as kind of the brains of the operation. I thought, well, that sounds great because I love space. I love these computers. I love writing software. I run my own poor man space program right here in Canandaigua, New York, and see if we can uh, get some awesome photos and videos of space. So we sent the first one up back in 2016 and lost it spectacularly. It's still gone. Never found it again. It was a complete failure. Just made me more determined to try harder. So we did the second one. Second one we got back. Had some amazing photos and videos. Just really hooked me into it. I had to do more. Had to do better. And we started getting some people asking me how to do it. How do they get involved with it? And it kind of just grew from there, trying to spread the resources and get people interested in how to how they could do their own science projects at home and how they can get more interested in science and tech. And that's where Overlook Horizon was born. 
I have to ask Tori, what's the uh, the highest altitude that one of your balloons has reached? And have you ever had any occasions where the cameras or the memory cards or anything have failed? So you go through all that effort with an empty hand at the end of it? Uh, yeah, so the highest one we did was back on the solar eclipse back in 2017. Went to 112,500 feet or a little over 34 kilometers in altitude. That was the highest we've been. I've been trying to break that every, almost every flight that we do. I've been trying to, trying to break higher than that, but it gets really tough to do. We have had stuff fail all the time. We usually, you know, obviously the first one failed entirely, and that was due to me not adequately calculating how much battery was going to be needed. But uh, as far as like SD cards and things like We've definitely had failures on cameras as well. Usually we do have some redundancy to try to protect against that, uh, both now on our tracking systems and on the cameras as well. So usually we fly three cameras most of the time. Usually two of them face out the side for redundancy, and then one faces upwards at the balloon, because usually the balloon, when it gets to its peak altitude, it, it just explodes into a million pieces. It's really cool to see. And so we have one that usually faces up there. But as far as failures, yeah, we've had we've had all kinds of failures. Uh, we've had our cameras. Some of the cameras we use are a little bit noisy in terms of electromagnetic interference, and they can mess with our GPS. SD cards have failed. We landed one flight on uh, high voltage power lines who were 250,000 volts or something like that. And that just fried the cameras and the SD cards. But I was able to actually recover that. Uh, but for a while, I thought they were just toast, but I was able to, I was able to work some magic and repair the SD card so we could get the footage off of that. Um, we've also had cameras fail in flight. Uh, sometimes they can shift around in flight. And I had one camera that somehow the zoom button got pressed, like while it was in the middle of flight and you can actually see it in flight, like zooms in and it gets, it's digital zoom. So when it zooms in, it gets like super grainy and awful looking. So we had one flight where one of the cameras was just garbage because it just looked so grainy. So we've had a, a couple of failures like that. That, but we've been fortunate enough where in just about all of them, with the exception of that first one, we've been able to salvage it with some of the redundancy that we have on board. So when you do have uh, those brilliant successes, speaking as not exactly a software engineer so much, uh, I'm more of a kind of software cobbler and <laughs> hack things together. But when those things do work, when I've been successful with various software projects or building something on an Arduino, it's always just a amazing feeling of accomplishment. Can you describe what does it feel like when you do have those successes? When the balloon goes up, uh, you lose sight of it, it comes back, you recover the footage and you just see the, the fruits of your labor. What does that feel like? Yeah, that's a great question because it's probably my number one favorite thing about doing these weather balloon flights in general. It's what it's kind of my favorite thing about just being a software engineer in general is like once you build something and you see that it works and it does what you told it to do, like it always just feels like magic. I mean, I know exactly how it's working, but it's, it seems like it's magic at the end. And you're like, hey, look at that. It worked. Doing it with weather balloons just amplifies that so much more because there's so much anxiety flying, at least for me, <laughs> flying a weather balloon flight because you only see it once you let it go. It's like a three hour flight and you only see it for the first five minutes and maybe the last 20 seconds if you're lucky. So you let it go and five minutes later, it's gone. It's in the clouds. It's too high up. It's too small. You can't see it anymore. And the only indication you have that things are working is your radio transmitting system that's telling you that things are working. And you don't really know if things are actually working or the radio transmitting system is, you know, 
failed and it's lying to you or something like that. There's some redundancy built into the computer itself that if it experiences a problem, it'll reboot itself. But we've had periods where all of a sudden the radio transmissions will stop and you'll hear silence for a couple of minutes and then it'll come back and you're like, oh, thank goodness. When you finally get it back and it comes through the clouds, especially if you can see it land and you're like, wow, it just it actually did it. Like it went 34 kilometers in altitude, came back. Sometimes it'll travel hundreds of of miles and it comes down and you're like, look, it actually worked. It's just, it's an amazing feeling when it all comes together and you can get to the end of the flight and just hold whatever, whatever it was you sent up, whether it's a figurine or just the computer itself. A lot of times it's freezing, freezing cold, even on a really hot day. And you just hold it and you're like, this thing was at the edge of, of the earth. Like I just sent this to the edge of space and back again and was able to build this system that made that happen and survive. It's, it really is a pretty awesome feeling. It's my favorite part about the whole thing. And you mentioned that uh, you started with playing around with like Raspberry Pis and Arduinos. What do you currently use in uh, in the sense of uh, the hardware that you send up? And uh, what kind of software do you use to do that? What are the reasons for those choices that you make uh, for the software and the hardware? We mostly use Arduinos for the actual flight computer, the tracking system, all the sensors and things like that. We also use some Raspberry Pis as well. Most of them are on our ground stations. They're really great for their simplicity. Like if you're going to send something to the edge of space and back, you want to make things simple. You want to make sure that there's nothing that can interfere with it or go wrong. I mean, I think we've all, even if you're not a software engineer, you're pro- people have had problems with their computers or software updates that break things. And like, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. So like, that's the last thing you want on a weather balloon flight when it's at 34 kilometers in altitude. So just having the simplicity to it, the Arduinos, they're just a microcontroller that'll loop through and run the same process over and over and over again. So basically it's every one second, it's collecting sensor data. Every few seconds, it's sending a radio positioning beacon And it just does that over and over again, all the way to the end of the flight to keep it simple. So there's nothing complicated to interfere with because there's there's plenty that can go wrong by itself without trying to introduce other outside sources. The other thing is they're just small and lightweight because weight is really a super important factor with launching weather balloons because there's a trade-off. Just like with rocket launches, you're only going to go so high depending on the weight you put on, or you're only going to fly for so long. So there's trade-offs. The more weight you have, the more you're going to sacrifice in the flight, and the lower you can keep that weight, the better. What kind of uses are there for high-altitude balloons, and how it relates to space? Yeah, so there's a there's a ton of uses for them. I mean, obviously, the, the professional use is with our weather services. There are across the world, twice a day, every single day, 1100 UTC, 2300 UTC, they launch hundreds of weather balloons all across the world to get a snapshot of what the atmosphere is doing at all these different points around the world. And so, you know, they're taking temperature, pressure, humidity, wind speed readings, and and that's really a big contribution to how we get our daily forecast still. You know, a lot of people think about the amazing, huge technological advancements in satellites and things like that, which are great, but still these weather balloons, which in a lot of people's minds seem a little more basic, are still very much a part of our daily forecasts. And so that's kind of the professional side of things and how they're used. But then there's the the amateur side of things, which is, you know, you can obviously do all the same sort of stuff and collect weather data, but, you know, schools and students and even just people that like DIY projects that they want to be proud of can send up sensors to measure the same sort of things. They can send up, you know, the photos and and get photos and videos. That's obviously probably the big draw to be able to get that sort of stuff on your own. Uh, Schools will do it for chemistry research and studies and biology research and studies. And then obviously there's a big one, which is how I got into it, which is the computer science 
side of things, which is just, you know, being able to build a computer system that's completely autonomous. Like it has to work from start to finish and it really puts you through this whole mental process of figuring out everything that could possibly go wrong and how you're going to account for that throughout the entire stages of flight. Because just like a rocket launch, like once you let this thing go and you hit T0, there's no undo button. Like you're, it's going and it better work the way you think it's going to work. Because if it doesn't, you're losing it. It's going to be gone forever. Things are going to fail. And so it's just a real thought provoking process to figure out, you know, how are you going to make sure the cameras work? How are you going to make sure your batteries don't die at negative 70 degree temperatures? How are you going to make sure you get a tracking signal? Because there's no mobile phone towers at 34 kilometers in altitude. How are you going to get a GPS signal? Because most consumer GPS systems, they don't work once you go above 10 or 20 kilometers. So you got to think through all these processes when you're getting ready to fly a weather balloon project because they, weather balloons in general are not thought of as super complicated and super cool. A lot of people think, well, I, I could tie a, tie a camera to a balloon, send it up into space, piece of cake. Take me five seconds. But once you start thinking about, like, how am I going to get it back? How do I deal with the cold? How do I make sure the parachute works and it doesn't come crashing down at a thousand miles per hour? Like, you got to make sure that all these systems work. And so it, it's really just kind of a, a whole exercise in engineering in general. And it's fun at the same time. I know you send cameras up, obviously, to get the footage of the balloons. But what's the strangest thing you've also sent up and photographed on one of your high altitude balloons? Well, the strangest thing has got to be the toy lobster that we sent up. Uh, it's kind of a recurring, uh, recurring theme on our YouTube channel is the, the space lobster theme. It has a whole long backstory. There's animals all over my channel for some reason. I can't stop it. I don't know if I want to stop it, but it has a recurring theme. But we sent up a, a space lobster. That That's probably the strangest one. But uh, we also sent up, probably my favorite one, is we sent up a hockey puck for the Las Vegas Golden Knights, the NHL hockey team. I got flown out there uh, back in September 2019 to fly their their opening puck up to the edge of space, basically. And they were trying to break the record for the highest puck drop. And so they flew me out there. And uh, it was a lot of fun because you got to see not only the puck, but this backdrop of the Las Vegas desert out there. And it's just there's just nothing out there. It was pretty it was a pretty amazing sight and, you know, something unique that I, I don't usually see on our balloon flights up here in upstate New York which is still here in upstate New York is kind of a, a beautiful sight too because we've got all the Finger Lakes and the, the Great Lakes and stuff like that that you can see. But it, that was just, that was a really unique one was flying that puck up. Well, speaking about ice hockey, do you follow ice hockey? Are you a fan? I am very much a fan of ice hockey. I played ice hockey for many years. I still play ice hockey, um, but not only am I a fan, uh, I'm actually also a professional ice hockey referee. Um, so I don't referee in the uh, in the NHL, but I referee professional minor pro ice hockey. I've done that for 23 years now. So it's uh, it's definitely a passion of mine. But interestingly enough, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, when they contacted me to fly their, their puck, they actually had no idea that I was even interested in hockey or that I did any of that. So it was just a, a coincidental juxtaposition of, of two of my favorite hobbies that just happened to come together. Awesome. What is your best experience with high altitude balloons? Yeah, best experience is, uh, I don't know, we've had a lot of great experiences. I think probably the the best one or the most memorable one 
Maybe my favorite one is has got to be on our eighth flight, which is when we were we were still working on our tracking systems and trying to make sure everything was going to work. At the the eighth flight, everything worked so well that I was able to be underneath the balloon and catch it as it landed. So you know, you think three hour flight, you know, all the distance it's traveled, how high it's going, the fact that you can only see it for five minutes and then it comes down, and all the computer systems say that it's going to be at this point, and that's where I'm standing, and it worked so much so that I was able to catch it. Like that was pretty awesome. That was that was one of my favorite ones. I mean, we've I've got a lot of favorite photos and favorite videos too. That's probably the most memorable moment because you know, speaking to the earlier question, like that was really just the pinnacle of going like, wow, every, everything we just worked so hard on worked in the end. Like that was the the pinnacle point of that. And so, how easy would it be for someone like me to just go out, get supplies, and start sending things up on high altitude weather balloons? Is it something anyone can get into? Is there any sort of flight restrictions that you might need to get around? Anything like that? Yeah, this is always an interesting question to answer because I, I have to answer it almost with a yes and a no because I like to start with the yes part. Like, yes, it is easy to do, and you can do it, and especially anybody listening at home like you can do it it is a project that you can tackle and it's not as hard as most people think it is but the no part of it i like to point out because there is there's also a certain camp of people that's that look at the weather balloon stuff you know like i mentioned earlier and they're like yeah i could tie a camera to a balloon we'll send it up it it, to be a weekend project it's much more complicated than that than most people realize like a lot of people just don't think of weather balloons as being that complicated it's not insurmountable you can do it, but just be prepared that like there is a lot to think about. It's not super complicated stuff. Like nobody has to do orbital mechanics, mathematics and stuff like that, but like you just really have to think about the entire process all the way through. So like I mentioned before, like launching, how are you going to track it? How do you make sure that you are being safe from an aviation standpoint? You're going to be safe for your launch team, safe for air traffic, safe for people and animals that might be underneath it. When it comes down, there are guidelines and regulations to make sure to follow in order to be safe, but none of them are super complicated. Like some of them are just like you have to use a certain strength of string between your balloon and your payload. And that's not not complicated to overcome, but it's an important step that you don't want to skip because that's one of the things that makes sure that if for some reason something happened during flight, the ultimate goal is that an aircraft wins the battle with a weather balloon. So all of the regulations ensure that one, in the first place, an aircraft is going to be nowhere near your weather balloon. That's why we coordinate with the FAA and air traffic control to make sure that they're not there, that nobody's around it in the first place. But then step two of that is, is if for some reason, some impossible scenario where an aircraft does come near it that the aircraft wins no matter what no matter what hits it so it has to be the least amount of density possible and your string can only be such a certain strength and has to be certain color parachutes and things like that it's all those things when combined make it a pretty safe hobby in the end hope you are enjoying the show consider supporting us on patreon if you like what we do go to patreon.com slash total space now back to the show so one of the things i think you might have noticed by our collective accents is we're quite a globally diverse group here it sounds like you've done a lot of balloon launches in in new york i think you mentioned in uh, las vegas and maybe some other places in the united states but Have you ever done anything internationally? And what would you recommend to our audience, especially people who would like to do this themselves that are not in the United States? Yeah, that's a good point, too. Sometimes I I also forget about that. Um, Yeah, all of our stuff does happen in the United States because that is where I'm based in. 
step one of the process is always going to be to review the aviation guidelines in whatever country that you happen to be in. Most of them are pretty uh, accommodating to research and weather balloon flights in general. Um, I mentioned earlier that I know it's really, really popular in the UK. I think there's a lot of countries in the EU where it's where it's done as well. I'm less familiar with some of the other areas of the world as far as what their regulations are, but step one is always going to be review what your, what your country's regulations are as far as weather balloon flights. Usually they're going to be called like unmanned or untethered balloons. Most of the time the regulations aren't super uh, super complicated to read through. Like here in the United States, it's maybe like two paragraphs of, of information that, that you have to follow. I know there are some countries that just say uh, no can do. You can't you can't fly weather balloons here unless you have a permit. So obviously, if you're in one of those countries, you're going to have a, a much harder time flying. But a lot of the countries are pretty easy to get through regulations. So that that's where you got to start. And that also determines too what sort of radio tracking system you might use. So here in the United States, we use a lot of uh, radio tracking systems we there's a lot of people that use like the aprs and amateur radio or ham radio tracking systems that's also really popular in the uk as well check your country's regulations would be the, the first step so do you find that the work with balloons and i know you do an awful lot through your social media channels covering space launches and so on does that help being space and science communicator to get the message across and and what's the most fulfilling part of of being in that role you know, when we started talking about and doing these weather balloons, like I just got so excited to see people interested in the project and the the YouTube channel and the stuff with spaceflight kind of came about as a as a method of like how to expand people's knowledge base and how to how to bring them in to this sort of project. So we had, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like weather balloons are not usually seen as like the really cool thing to do. Like a lot of if you put a, a weather balloon and a model rocket in front of somebody, like especially a younger kid, like a lot of times they're going to pick the model rocket because they're like, oh, that's a rocket. But if you can get the, the message across and show how a weather launching a weather balloon is like launching a model rocket or even more so like like launching a real rocket just on a you know, way way smaller scale that's uh, kind of the satisfaction that I get from it is once we can bring people into the science world and you can see people that you know maybe they they come to watch and to learn about space flights and I love talking about space flights I love everything about SpaceX and love engaging with the community and things like that and everything we do is really just to get people into the science community so it's you know nothing against model rockets like if i can get you into model rockets great but you know the the space flight using kind of nasa and spacex as the draw that gets people hooked into they want to see something about that and it's like oh while you're here let's talk about stuff that you can do at home and you know what what kind of projects you can get interested in and how can we get you more interested in in science and technology instead of just watching you know one crewed astronaut launch a year you know maybe you can start watching more and once you see people that are like oh now they're watching starlink launches now they're watching nrol launches from united launch alliance or from spacex and they're now they're getting interested in the whole field in general like that's really the the thing that gets me most interested is is seeing all these people myself and, and even the other science communicators that are on youtube and on twitter like it just seems like it it's this big growing wave and as the tide rises here all of us are increasing the the level of scientific activity and interest as a whole and like i just love that that's great thank you i know that you cover a lot of the space launches particularly in the last few years as the commercial sector has, has grown and become uh, more more outgoing what's your favorite event that you've you've covered to date what's your favorite part of live streaming uh, space launch my favorite one that I've covered has got to be the uh, the Demo 2 launch. That seemed like kind of one of the 
the pinnacle moments when we started launching astronauts again that really after i finished live streaming the demo 2 launch i got a million messages from friends of mine family of mine like people that don't watch my channel regularly that all of a sudden tuned in because of that one and it spurred people into into starting to watch all of a sudden because they they saw how excited that I was about it. And they were like, wow, I, I didn't even know all this stuff was going on. And so that was probably my favorite moment so far. I mean, some that stick out in the past is any of the Falcon Heavy launches were pretty awesome. I remember having a similar feeling for the, the very first Falcon Heavy demo launch. Those are all all exciting. But really, it, it kind of came to a point at at demo two just because of all the messages I got in my personal life about people that that were sucked into the community here yeah the demo 2 mission must be my favorite space moment too when did your interest in space start was it before you got into high altitude balloons or after oh it's definitely before i mean i've loved space for as long as i can remember i mean i was always being into space shuttle missions and things like that my my wife who was my girlfriend at the time used to make fun of me because i would watch nasa tv when we, we probably watched the apollo 13 movie about 750 times uh before she said all right we gotta we gotta watch something else at this point but uh yeah i've, I've been into space for so long the overlook horizon stuff the weather balloon stuff and the youtube channel has given me personally just this kind of outlet to share my excitement for it like I, a lot of people laugh about this but like i would do i would do what i'm doing on the youtube channel just in my personal life it's just a lot less entertaining because it's just me by myself in a room <laughs> being this excited um so this has just given me an outlet to kind of reach more people and and connect with people that also love space this much it, it's kind of it's a little bit sad that there's not as many people like in my personal inner circle here that are that into uh, space flight. So I, I try to get them more involved, but being kind of on this online platform allows me to reach out and connect with other people that are equally as excited about this stuff. Yeah, I think the situation is same for most of us. Not many people interested in space within our close friends. Speaking of your Overlook Horizon channel, would you talk a bit more about the aspect of it being non-profit? Well, Overlook Horizon as a as a company is a non-profit charitable organization. So, uh, so I, I mentioned I have a regular job. Like that's that's where I make my money from. That's where I you know pay to put food on my table for my family. The stuff that I do for Overlook Horizon is is all volunteer work. So I, I think it is a little bit of a unique channel um, compared to some of the other organizations because, you know, people that help support the channel, like 100% of it goes back into the channel itself because it is a, a nonprofit charitable organization. So, you know, by by law, none of the money can come to me personally, which I'm perfectly fine with. Like that, I set it up like that on purpose because really the, the intent of Overlook Horizon when I had set it up with, um, you know, the other people that are on our board of directors, like the intent of it was, you know, not for me to personally gain out of this. Like, yes, I get this outlet where I can have a lot of fun, but uh, monetarily, like the intent is to just to just get people interested in space and technology and things like that. So any funds that come into it have to go right back into the organization to to further our our mission so uh so yeah that everything that overlook horizon does is a charitable a charitable organization it's their charitable goals and missions just to just to enhance society and people's interest speaking of your youtube channel one has to ask the question has there ever or will there ever be a time when two minute tuesday will be under two minutes 
<laughs> um, probably not. Uh, maybe I might break one out and uh, make one under two minutes and just surprise everybody. But I love the fact that Two Minute Tuesday is never two minutes. It drives people crazy and people suggest all the time like we should move it to three minute Thursday or five minute Friday or seven minute Saturday or ten minute Tuesday. Or I mean, I love that people are interested and they want to try to help the channel. Um, but I also love that it's a, it will likely forever be a little bit of an inside joke that's Two Minute Tuesday will never be two minutes unless someday I really surprise you guys and I just like end the video at exactly two minutes like that might happen I, I might do that as as a fun tidbit but most of them are going to be more than two minutes I mean two minute Tuesday kind of started there's other creators out there that do these two minute Tuesday type videos so it's not an entirely unique idea that I'm doing a, a weekly segment every Tuesday but it's really kind of a personal challenge for me to try to put out content on a weekly basis because I was personally struggling with that, like trying to come up with ideas. And if I didn't if I didn't have something that was just perfect, like I just wouldn't do anything, which I think was worse. And so it, it's really just a personal challenge to myself to try to put out something interesting at least once every week. And uh, yeah, it probably won't ever be two minutes. <laughs> I always think the uh, the two minute Tuesday is a good compromise between a very short TikTok video and a, and a long twenty minute or thirty minute deep dive topic. But uh, I have to ask the question here, though, Tori, is uh, you mentioned animals in the channel earlier on. Can you tell us a little bit more about space lobster, oxygen mice, and uh, and deorberate, please? Yeah, I'll. Uh, well, I want I do want to touch on what you just mentioned about uh, TikTok and stuff like that. The two minute Tuesday was also kind of an extension of uh, we've had a lot of success on TikTok uh, just because I can put out 15 second videos, which is kind of awesome. But I do think it's kind of a nice in between. So two minute Tuesday will always be short, but maybe not necessarily two minutes. Uh, but as far as the the space lobster and the mice and the animals and stuff like that, it, it's been a, a recurring theme on the channel, which I think is too big to stop at this point. But uh, most of them all come from bloopers from myself. You know, when you're live streaming as as much as I do, like it, perfection is is a hard goal to strive for. So the only way to to deal with that, you know, in my early days, I'd be super embarrassed if I did something on stream. But now I kind of you just have to lean into it. So the space lobster uh, that was a uh, during that was my first big blooper really and that was during the falcon heavy live stream i was still very early on and how to operate a live stream in general and it's still one of my top videos of all time i think at one point we had like over a hundred thousand concurrent users watching that live stream and it has you know almost three hundred thousand views on it or something like that and right right at the peak of it which everybody was watching because they wanted to try to figure out what happened to the center core like it was very elusive what you know did the center core land did it not land what happened to it so everybody was watching we were trying to figure out what was happening and like right at the peak like literally when the most people were watching all of a sudden a red lobster advertisement just blasted across my stream from one of my browser windows i had open at like a thousand decibels in volume, like as high as it could possibly be. I was super embarrassed at the time. I just remember thinking like, oh my goodness, like all these people just saw how much of an idiot I am. And then it just blew up from there. People were sending me, I was getting uh, tweets with lobsters and my head on lobsters and the hashtag space lobster started trending nationally on Twitter. And we had a lot of people started thinking that hashtag space lobster was some sort of official representation for the red tesla that was being flown and they were sharing the hashtag space lobster without even knowing what the origin was and even on the press conference live stream people were spamming space lobster through all the the press conference chat and everything it just 
it just blew up and I, I just couldn't control how much it was or, you know, where, what direction it was heading and uh, kind of just had to lean into it. And that's, that's how Space Lobster was born. And uh, some of the other ones are, are very similar stories, like the deorberate. Uh, I just completely made up a word uh, while live streaming. I, I said that something was going to deorberate out of space and I, it's just my mind melted. <laughs> um, the what else have we had? Uh the space mice, that's a big conspiracy theory uh, with like flat earthers. They think that there was, especially on the Demo 2 mission, that there was a mouse that hitched a ride on the Falcon 9 and really it was just solidified oxygen coming out of the vent port. And so we talk a lot about animals and stuff on the channel for some reason. It just always seems to come back to, to animals. Thanks, Tori. So with you saying it's a charitable organization, I assume some of the profits from that is funding the weather balloons. Does that make up a margin of the profit? And if so, are you comfortable telling us how much of a margin of the charity funds that that takes up? Um, I don't know. So, I mean, in general, like we don't bring in a ton of funds like our... Um I don't know the percentage that actually goes to weather balloon flights, but weather balloon flights in general usually cost us uh, anywhere from like $700 to $1,500. It's US dollars, obviously, but uh, that's usually what each flight costs us is somewhere in that range. Um, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head what that would be as a percentage of our income, but I mean, everything dollar wise is going back into the program in some way. Not all of it is towards weather balloon flights. I mean, there's it does pay for running some of those weather balloon flights so that we can do experimentation and try to give people ideas on stuff that they can do with flights. Um, some of it goes into just some of the, the video stuff that we make, whether it's Know, microphones and cameras and and lighting and things like that you know at the at the end of the day uh, being a charitable organization just any anything we're receiving fund wise has to be spent on on furthering our mission you know so I can't I'm not going out to buy a, a new car with it or things like that it's just the, those funds have to improve our organization in some way to to help further our mission do you have any predictions of serial number eight 15 kilometer hop what do you think will happen? Oh, I don't know. I'm kind of on the edge. Like, I didn't think that serial number five was going to launch and land successfully. Like, it just seemed mind-boggling that the the giant grain silo would be able to fly and land. But but yet it did. And that was, like, pleasantly surprising. So, like, part of me is thinking that, like, I think it's going to launch fine. I think it'll fly. I think it'll make it to 15 kilometers. I think it'll even do the belly flop just fine. Uh, my question is like the end of the belly flop maneuver, the landing portion, like I just, I can't pick, I've seen the simulations. I've seen what some of the awesome 3d renderers do with it. And like, it looks amazing. I'm just wondering like, does that translate? How does that translate into real life? If that happens without a hitch, I'm I'm just going to go bonkers. I think like, I will just be so shocked. I'm setting it up for a spectacular failure, but I'll be bouncing off the walls if they land it successfully. I mean, I, I have to ask, obviously, you've covered quite a few space launches live streams. You've covered the testing by SpaceX. Do you think SpaceX has made that huge difference in terms of its openness and transparency and, and the quality of its broadcasts and so on to, to you as a YouTuber, but also to the space community and the wider public? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think the one thing that gets overlooked for SpaceX by a lot of maybe spaceflight companies or just people in the spaceflight industry is like the public's interest in spaceflight, whether we like it or not, helps direct where our space policies and things like that go. So trying to get people interested in spaceflight is a, a huge benefit to, to seeing things 
develop and continue. So I think their openness and the fact that you can see, you know, them develop it and just have, you know, we've got people like, you know, NASA Spaceflight and Everyday Astronauts and all these people that are that are down there right now to watch this test flight that for most other companies would probably just be done in secret and quiet and you'd never see it. But yet so many people are so invested in it and so excited in it. And it just, it really drives the excitement. It gives us something to look forward to and something to participate in as a community that uh, if, it, if this was all done in secret, I mean, it could be years and years and years before we finally see like a finished test flight and i don't i don't necessarily think that's it's great to go radio silence for years and years without exciting the community so i, I think it's great what spacex is doing out in the open I'm, I'm sure they want to protect some stuff but if there's stuff that doesn't really need to protect be protected i love that they're letting us see it i completely agree all right that's all the time we have today i've been mikko a big thank you to you tori for joining us for a chat and you are also welcome to come back to one of our shows another time on framerick and thanks to miko and the team for letting me join in as a host on the deep dive podcast today and thanks ever so much to tori for joining us Hey everyone, I'm Kage. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary. And if you liked this, be sure to check us out at totalspace.net. Also find us on Twitter, totalspace.net. And yeah, thank you, uh, Miko, for having me. And Tori, thank you so much for joining us. I've been another Space Nut. Thanks for listening today, guys. Thank you, Tori. An absolute pleasure. I'm Rich LB, and I'm another co-host as well at Becoming Multiplanetary, along with Cargo. Thank you very much, Miko, for having us on the episode this week. Thank you, Tori, for coming along and letting us know all about Overlook Horizon as well. I would also like to give a shout-out to our Patreons that are currently supporting us, and if you'd like to become a Patreon too, you can at patreon.com forward slash total space. And don't forget to check out Tori's YouTube channel, Overlook Horizon. Thanks, guys, for uh, having me on. This was a lot of fun. Love being here. Love connecting with new people in the space world. So I'm definitely up to to come back and talk more again. Hopefully we see a, a good SN8 hop. I'm super excited. And uh, I will. Uh, you can find me over on our, our YouTube channel, Overlook Horizon, if uh, you want to see me bounce off the walls during uh, SN8. <laughs> <laughs>